What shall I do to inherit eternal life? If you would turn to Luke chapter 10, and our main passage will be from there today. So in Luke chapter 10, an expert of the law comes up to Jesus to ask him a question. So it says, starting in verse 25, Just then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he asked them, and how do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And you've answered correctly, he told him. Do this and you will. You will live. <clears throat> so we know that the, the expert of the law was coming to test Jesus, to try to get Jesus maybe to say something wrong or to do something. But let's look now. The question, what does it mean to inherit eternal life? What is inherit? Well, inherit is to receive a lot, um, to receive a portion, something that's assigned to you. Receive as a possession. We know inherit, you inherit from your mother or father, from your parents. Somebody might leave you something. So inherit is to give you something. And then, of course, eternal is without beginning and end. That always has been and always will be. So we know that the eternal there, that's that just that everlasting. And then life, of course, is the state of one who is possessed of vitality or is animate. So these quotes, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Where do these come from? So if we go back to the Old Testament, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. So in Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 5, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So as Bob mentioned last Sunday night, this is the Shema. This is, if you go into Jewish houses, you'll probably see this put up on their wall. This is very important to the Jewish. And as a small aside here, um, I went to a conference this weekend, and we heard a speaker. And he was talking about how to be involved in your child's life. So one of the things he was talking about is giving them acceptance, admiration, but it made me think, when our children are young, are we the ones that are teaching them? Are we the ones that are giving them their morals or their values? Are they getting it from TV? Are they getting it from YouTube? How are they learning their morals and their values? Are we the ones that are doing here, as it says, talk to them when you sit 
in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up? Is it our goal to make sure that we're the ones teaching our children? Now let's turn to Leviticus 19. So Leviticus 19, starting in verse 17. You must not harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke rebuke your neighbor directly, and you will not incur guilt because of him. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. So the love being talked here, talked about here, is the verb form of agape. Which agapio, I'm not going, not as good as Bob at the Greek, but to welcome, to entertain, to be fond of, to love dearly, to be well pleased, to be contented at or with a thing, and we know agape, the type of love that is. So this is that love that we're to have for each other, to welcome and to entertain people, to love each other dearly, to love God this way, as well. So, as it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. So what does it mean to love God with your heart? What is the heart here that we're talking about? The heart here we're talking about is that, and to me, heart and soul, and even mind a little bit, they all intertwine. But that heart is the will and character that you have the understanding you have, the faculty, your seat of intelligence. Um, it's that center and seat of your spiritual life. That's the heart we're looking at here. And what about that soul? The soul, of course, the seat of the feelings, the desire, affections. Um, this human soul... And so far as it's constituted that by the right use of the aids offered by God, it contain its highest end, which is eternal life, and secure eternal blessedness, the soul regarded as a moral being designed for everlasting life, uh, and as an essence, which differs from the body and is not dissolved by death. And then what is it to strength? The strength is our ability, the force, the strength and might that we have. And our mind. The mind is the faculty of understanding, the feeling, desiring of understanding. The way we think, the way we feel, our thoughts, they're either good or bad. And then what is our neighbor? It's a friend or any other person, and we're too concerned that we come to um, any man, irrespective of nation or religion with whom we live or whom we chance to meet. If we'll turn back to Luke chapter 10, our passage for the day. So back in Luke chapter 10, we did the first part, 25 through 28, but let's look at 29 now, where this goes back to the expert in the law. 
So wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus took up the question and said, a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw him, when he saw the man, he had compassion. And he went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. And then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an end, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I'll reimburse you for what ex- whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? The one who showed mercy to him, he said, that being the expert in the law. And then Jesus told him to go and do the same. So this is our neighbors. This is what our neighbor is anybody. It's not just, you know, who lives next door to us, but it's anybody that we come in contact with. So we're to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength and mind, and we're to love our neighbors. So we're to love everyone. So how do we show our love to God? Well, I think the first thing we do is look to Jesus as an example and how he showed his love to God. So let's turn to John chapter 14. So in John chapter 14, verse 31... On the contrary, I am going away so that the world may know that I love the Father just as the Father commanded me, so I do. So we see that Jesus loved the Father, so we're to love God as Jesus loved God. And one of the ways that Jesus loved God is by doing his commandments. And then let's look how to, I think the next step is to look how God loves us. Let's turn to 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. So in 1 John chapter 4, starting with verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way, that God sent his one and only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. No one has ever seen God And if we love one another, God remains in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is how we know that we remain in him, and he in us. He has given assurance to us from his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Savior, sent his Son, and the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him, and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. 
God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, for we are as his in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear, because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears has not reached perfection in love, and we love because he first loved us. So we all know God loved us. He sent his son, John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We have to look to that love that God gave us. And we can see how we are to love others. So let's, the next logical step to me is, if you love God, you're going to keep his commandments, as Jesus said in John 14. Let's turn back to John, or to First uh, John, sorry, go back over to chapter 2. First John chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. This is, how we sh- this is how we are sure that we have come to know him, by keeping his commands. The ones who say, says, I have come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is perfected. And this is how we know we are in him. And then we'll turn over to John chapter, 1 John chapter 5. So in 1 John chapter 5, starting verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of Him. This is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey His commands. For this is what love for God is, to keep His commands... Now his commands are not a burden, because whatever has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Then we'll turn to John chapter 14. Look at a few verses there. John 14. So John 14, starting with verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commands. And this is Jesus talking to his apostles. And then in verse 21. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my father. I also will love him and reveal myself to him. And then verse 23. And 24, Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. So if we love Jesus and we love God, then we're going to keep their commands. And we're going to do what they want us to do. Next, let's look at Philippians chapter 9, and let's talk about growing in knowledge. Philippians chapter 1, sorry, verse 9. 
And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you can approve the things that are superior and can be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So there, our love is going to help us to keep on growing in knowledge because we're never going to be perfect. We're never going to be one day and say, oh, well, we have all the knowledge we ever need. We've got to keep growing in knowledge. So some other ways we show our love to God is our love for Jesus. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, First Peter chapter 1, starting verse 8. You love them, you love him, though you have not seen him. And though not seeing him now, you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So we have faith. Is our faith based on something that we've seen? Have we seen Jesus? We haven't seen him, but we do believe in him through God's words, through the Bible. And we have that faith and we have that love for Jesus based on that. Other ways we can show love to God is self-denial. If we turn back to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 39. The ultimate example here of self-denial. Going a little further, he fell face down and prayed, My Father, it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And we all know what Jesus is talking about. His ultimate self-denial is to go and allow himself to be crucified. Back in Matthew chapter 10, another way that we can show self-denial. Chapter 10, verse 37. Actually, let's start in verse 35. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of this house of his household. The person who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The person who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And we see there that that's telling us we have to love God more than we love ourselves or anyone else. God's the most important love that we should have. Then we can persevere in love. Let's look at Jude, verse 20 and 21. So in Jude, verses 20 and 21. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit, 
Keep yourselves in the love of God, expecting the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. So we need to keep that faith. We need to keep praying and build ourselves up. And let's wait for Jesus' return. And let's look at James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. A man who endures trials is blessed, because when he passes the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, for God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. So there are going to be trials that we face in this life. But we should know that God is going to be there with us, and that we can make it through those trials. God will always be with us. If we persevere in his love. And the last way to show God our loves, let's turn back to Psalms 97. So in Psalms 97, verse 10, You who love the Lord hate evil. He protects the lives of his godly one, and he rescues them from the power of the wicked. So we're to hate sin. We're not to let sin in. We can't love God and then accept sin as well. But just the two do not. We, can't, we cannot serve two masters. So what about loving our neighbors? How do we show love to our neighbors? Well, let's look back over in John. So in John 13, starting with verse 34. I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we are to love each other as Christians, but we also have to love our neighbors. And if we're not showing that love, if we're not going out there showing that love, either people that know us or that as Christians are going to see that we're hypocrites, or they're not going to know we're Christians if we're not showing that love. <clears throat> Let's look at First Thessalonians chapter 4. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 9, About brotherly love, you don't need me to write to you, because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you're doing this toward all the brothers in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers, to do so even more, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you. 
so that you may walk properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. So we have to show each other brotherly love. And then this one was talking about giving money to those that were in need. First John chapter 4 talks about commanded to love one another. So let's look at First John chapter 4. Starting verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother, he has seen, he has seen, cannot love the God he has not seen. So, yeah, if we don't love each other, how can we love God? That's just common sense. And then in Matthew chapter 5. I know I have a lot of passages, but I'm not a great speaker and never as good as what God's Word can be. So Matthew chapter 5, verse, starting verse 43. Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if anyone loves those who love you, for if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we've had to love not just our friends, but our enemies as well to do Jesus' commandments. So now let's look at what are the benefits of loving God. What do we get out of loving God? Well, in Psalms chapter, or Psalm 145, verse 20. The Lord guards all those who love him, but he destroys all the wicked. So we'd be preserved by the God, by God, we'll be protected. Not necessarily protected or preserved on this earth. But if we love God, we obey God, keep his commandments, then we can look towards that eternal life with God. And then Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. So for those who love God, all things are going to work together for good. So what steps must we take to inherit eternal life. Now that we've talked about love, our love for God, what our love for God does, what is it that we must do? What steps must we take to inherit eternal life? There's another question of the Bible. I don't believe anybody is doing this 
lectureship. But let's turn to Acts chapter 2. It is similar to the eternal life. So in Acts chapter 2, we all know that's Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37, so this would be the Jews that were listening to him on the day of Pentecost. When they heard this, they came under deep conviction and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what must we do? And we know that what Peter went on to say to them. And we will get to that in a minute. So what steps must we take to inherit eternal life? Well, the first step, if we don't know the Word, if we don't know God's words, if we don't know what the steps are, then we can't do anything. So we must hear God's words. So Romans ten seventeen. So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. So that first step, we need to hear what comes from God's Word. And the ways that we can hear God's words, of course, is from sermons. Um, but also reading God's words, we can learn what we must do. Of course, that second step is to believe. In Hebrews 11, verse 6, Now without faith it is impossible to please God, for the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. So without belief... Without hearing God's word and then believing God's word from what we've heard, how can we inherit eternal life? Then we must repent. So in Acts 17, verses 30 through 31, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So God overlooked those times of ignorance, but now we're commanded to repent. If we're going to inherit eternal life, if we're going to hear God's word and believe in God's word, we have to repent and cannot continue living in sin, or there's no way we'll inherit eternal life. Then we must confess God's word. So Matthew chapter 10, 32 through 33. Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before man, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before man, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. So we've got to confess that we do believe that Jesus is the Son of God and what he was sent here to do. And then the step, what the last step of the plan of salvation that people would call it, be baptized. In Acts 2, 38, from where we just heard the question, brothers, what we, must we do to be saved? In Acts chapter 2, starting verse 38, Peter tells them, Repent, Peter said to them, and be baptized, each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So we know that is the plan of salvation. 
So is that it? Do we just do this plan of salvation and we're saved? Is that all we ever have to do? How do we live a godly life? Let's look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Starting verse 1. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so so we too may walk in a new way of life. For if we have been joined with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is freed from sin's claim. Now, if we died with Christ, so we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For in light of the fact that he died, he died to sin once for all. But in light of the fact that he lives, he lives to God. So you, to cons- so you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as wep- weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under law, but under grace. And then in starting in verse 22, jump down to 22. But now, since you have been liberated from sin and have become a slave to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification. And the end is eternal life for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we've died to sin. Sin's to have no dominion over our bodies. And we know that the wages of sin are death and we will not have eternal life if we have the wages of sin. First Corinthians chapter 9, 24 through 27. So to live a godly life. In verse 24, don't you know that the, running, the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. However, they do it, they do it to receive a crown that will fade away, but we a crown that will never fade away. Therefore, I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So let's run that race. Let's practice self-control, keep ourselves disciplined. And then we need to stay faithful to God. And in Hebrews chapter 10...
Hebrews chapter 10, starting verse 26. For if we had deliberately sinned after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. If anyone disregards Moses' law, he dies without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he has sent he was sanctified and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then James verse 2, James chapter 2. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Actually, I think I put this on my slide a little early. We'll come back to this one in a minute. So back in Hebrews 10, though, we're to stay faithful to God. If we don't stay faithful, we'll, we won't receive that eternal life. So, are we on the path to eternal life? Have we started that path? I want to turn and look at Matthew chapter 7 real quick. Because there's those there that say... Once you've started that path, that you can't fall off of that path, that you're saved for always. Um, what does Matthew chapter 7 say? Verse, starting verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? And then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. So we must do the will of the Father in heaven if we're going to stay on that path. There's also those today that say we are saved by grace alone. And we do need God's grace to be saved. There's no way that we can, we can't earn our salvation. We do need God's grace. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, they use this verse a lot of times. For Ephesians chapter 2, I heard somebody talking about God's grace saving us this weekend. There was God's, all God's grace. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting verse 8. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. Not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. So a lot of people talk, you know, we are saved by grace through faith, not from ourselves. And as I mentioned, we, there's no way we can be saved by ourselves. 
We, we aren't capable of earning our salvation. But what about Ephesians chapter 10? I mean, Ephesians, sorry, chapter 6. The very beginning is talking about children obeying your parents. Honor your father and mother. Fathers not stirring up. Slaves obeying your humans. The end of Ephesians chapter 6, we all know that that's the, the armor of God. And then when it's talking about the armor of God, it's talking about doing something. And what about when we read in Romans chapter 6? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin stay alive? But we just can't sit back and do nothing. As we've read in several verses today, we must do God's commandments. And there's works that we must do. And as I mentioned, we, can't earn, we cannot earn our salvation. But we must obey God's commandments. Let's turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister was a, is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat well, but you don't give them what is the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith... If it doesn't have works, it's dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith from my works. You believe that God is one and you do well, but the demons also believe and they shudder. Foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified, justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was perfected. So the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So we have to obey God's commandments. We can't neglect things. We can't neglect the assembly as we're commanded. We can't neglect taking care of each other and giving back to God and the whole list of commandments that we're given. So are you on the path for eternal life? Maybe there's those today that haven't started their path, they've not obeyed the gospel yet. Or maybe there's those that are on their path that have strayed and need the prayers. If anyone has these, we're here to help if anyone needs these. And that's my lectureship. Thank you.